0: You end up just talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center And extract
1: that what which is bogus and that which is not, doesn't seem to exist to think of objects, not as single things, but as being made up of many constituents. You all know realms. I made me hate science well,
0: You're out at the pub and someone says, hey, what, uh, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist Hey everybody, you are on Natural Reaction here on Z Digital And today we're going to be talking about some, pre- we've got some pretty good topics, I reckon
2: Yeah, it's an interesting one
0: Um, So, we've got Izzy in the studio. Hi. We've got Nadia in the studio. Hey, everyone. And we also have a very special guest. Uh, We have physics professor Tom Stace. Hello. In the studio with us. And you are from Equus, right? Is that how you say it?
1: Uh, That's how we pronounce it, yeah. Okay.
0: (laughs) And that's the quantum labs, basically, at UQ. Uh,
1: Well, it's bigger than that. It's the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence in Engineered Quantum Systems. So, it's across the country at five different universities. and yeah. It, don't don't Google Equus uh, if you've got sensitive is people around because that's the play Daniel Radcliffe did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So there's um yeah I'm going to Google Equus real quick. <laughs> Izzy,
3: what are you doing? Making but a mess. If
1: you want to check us out, Equus.org is is the way to find. go. That's, yeah. Yeah. and that's
3: E Q U U S. No one U. One U. Yeah.
1: Okay. Q Q U for quantum.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, so we're going to be talking about some other. So obviously we're going to be chatting to you today, and we thank you so much for coming in, Izzy. Yes. What are you talking about?
2: Oh yeah, uh, I'm sorry everyone, I just I couldn't get this one, I, this paper that was really interesting. It's a look into the effectiveness of NATO's uh, 2011 intervention into Libya. So see. if you need
0: to be put to sleep, um, <laughs> just cut out that one section of the show. I'll, I'll
2: do my best to distill the main points out quickly, because we'll it, it's a very go. interesting article, I do recommend people read it.
3: Sounds good. Um, mm. Nadia, what are you talking about? I was going to chat about Nettie Stevens, and she is responsible for discovering sex chromosomes. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I know who this person is. Yeah. I wasn't sure about it, but I obviously do, so that's exciting.
2: And as we all know, if we didn't know about sex chromosomes, we wouldn't have the, the books, the Dune books, and that would be a crime against humanity. So I'm glad she exists.
0: I, that was very...
2: Yeah, look, I mean, we talked about Dune last night, and it's just, <laughs> it's in my head. I, I re- Read Dune, people. <laughs>
0: If you want to get some... It's sci-fi, right? Yeah, it's very sci-fi. Yeah, so you can go and enjoy some sci-fi. And then I, if we have some time, I'm going to be talking about elongated skulls and this really weird find that they had in... Um, uh, they found these really like it, like alien-looking skulls, and they tried to work out what the hell was going on with them. So, um, you're in natural reaction here on Zed Digital, and Nadia, tell yes. me about our...
3: S- oh. Look, I've forgotten it on air twice now. Tell me about Nettie Stevens, please. (laughs) (laughs) Nettie Stevens. Yep. So today we're going to be talking about her as our snubbed scientist. And snubbed scientist is where we talk about sexism in science. And Nettie Stevens was an early American geneticist, and she's responsible for identifying sex chromosomes. She basically determined that um, sex determination must come from fertilization of the egg from male sperm. Uh, she's also a classic example of the Matilda effect, which is kind of the underlying phenomenon for a lot of our snub scientists. And that is uh, a woman's accomplishments tend to be co opted or stolen or even overshadowed by those of her male peers. Why is it called the Matilda effect? Um, it comes from uh, the name of somebody, Matilda Edgars or something. Is she going to be a snub scientist at some point? No, it was actually something different. It's a. Pardon me, let me get the Wikipedia page up on this. <laughs> um, okay, this effect was first described by suffragist and abolitionist Matilda Jocelyn Gage in her essay, Woman as Inventor. Oh, And actually it was, it was, it was coined, by, coined by a 1993 science historian. So uh, it's a bias against acknowledge- acknowledging the achievements of women scientists. Cool.
2: Uh, just for those of you playing at home, in case you don't know the, the word, suffragist is someone who fights for universal suffrage, so people's right to vote, and abolitionist is someone who fights against slavery.
3: Pretty good goals. Yeah, no, solid, solid, solid effort. Solid cultural (laughs) effort. And yes. so Nettie Stevens is a classic example of that. And interestingly, she had a relatively late start in scientific research and an unfortunately somewhat short-lived career. Nettie Stevens was born to a middle-class family in 1861, and she grew up in America just after the Civil War. She attended public elementary schools in Westford, Massachusetts, where even at an early age, her remarkable academic ability was noticed by teachers. At that time, as usual, education for women was not common, but Nettie was lucky enough to attend Westford Academy, which was a private high school open to men and women of all nationalities. When she graduated at the age of 19, she became a teacher, even though she still longed to continue her studies. She taught for three terms and saved up enough money to attend a teacher's college. And it only took her two years to complete the college's four-year course. She studied all of the sciences, scoring exceptionally high grades. Her grades in algebra, chemistry, and geometry were all perfect. And after graduating top of her class, Nettie continued teaching high school. She was recognized as a really highly talented teacher, and she also worked as a student supervisor. At some point throughout her years as an educator, Nettie decided that she wanted to become a scientist and she began saving as much money as possible to get through several years of studying for a university degree. And at the age of 35, Nettie's hard work and constant saving had paid off. She was accepted into Stanford University to study a bachelor's degree, which she received in 1899. And then she went on to complete her master's degree, specializing in physiology. And while she was busy with her master's degree, One of her bigger achievements was um, she discovered two new species. So she spent her summers working at Stanford's Hopkins Seaside Lab, where she specialized in studying microscopic anatomy of organisms and cells, and discovered and documented the life cycles of two new species of single-celled organisms called uh, Lichnophora macphorlandii and Bavaria subcyclindrica. That's pretty good to start with. Yeah, Two just, species that you discover while you're doing your master's. Yeah, and document deal. their life cycles? No, no, no issue. <laughs> and then finally, at the age of 39, Stevens began working as a research scientist, and the next 11 years proved to be the most productive of her life. Nettie continued studying and working towards a doctorate in cytology, which is the study of cells. She was heavily influenced by the previous head of the biology department, uh, Edmund Beecher Wilson, and by his successor, Thomas Hunt Morgan, who would later win a Nobel Prize for his work clarifying the chromosomes role in hereditary. So some good inspiration there. Mm-hmm. Nettie was awarded her PhD in 1903 at the age of 42. And she then went on to apply for funding to continue investigating the role of chromosomes. And she applied for the grant saying... I am especially interested in the histological side of the problems in heredity connected with Mendel's law, and I know that there is a need of great deal of painstaking work along that line. So during the early 1900s, uh, Gregor Mendel's work was going through its rediscovery. And we've spoken about Gregor Mendel before. He was an Austrian monk who studied pea plants, and he established the rules of heredity in 1866.
2: If you think back to your high school biology and your little Punnett squares with the big X and the little X, that's uh, Gregor Mendel you got to thank for that one.
3: Thanks, Mendel. (laughs) And yeah, so these rules govern how parental traits are passed on to their offspring. And nobody noticed the the significance of his work until its rediscovery in the 1900s and which is pretty crazy it's not that long ago but this like is the-, the 1900s are not that long ago and we're like oh yeah no we discovered
0: that Mendel was right and that like just like basic biology is now something that in the 1900s hadn't been a huge thing like it's
2: this is one of those very interesting things that a new because like we sort of project a modern idea of what we have in the scientific community now backwards in time but like before the ease of global communications, people could have like really interesting discoveries that would be completely locked away in only, in a lot of cases, like Gregor Mendel as a priest. A lot of learned people were in religious institutions, It's because uh, they've housed learning for centuries now. And then people would have these really written, detailed records of interesting scientific ideas that would just never be seen.
3: Yeah, they'd be at a university, and, and yeah. that would be it, like... Imagine Crazy. how much all the research we've missed. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous thinking, what, 118 years ago is when things really started moving for the sciences, it seems. I mean, biology. I don't know about, like... But even even physics and chemistry, that's when a whole bunch of the nuclear physics started coming about and all of that. That's um, true. So I think the early 1900s was massive when it came to, like, that kickstart of scientific developments.
1: Well, I'm surprised Darwin didn't have... Uh wasn't more inspired by Mendel. He um, you know, he, he was around in the 19th century, so 50 years before that. And so his theory of evolution obviously uh, has a lot to say about how hereditary works. <laughs> just, just, yeah. a, just a little
0: bit. Do you think that, I wonder if that was just like, like Darwin didn't see Mendel's stuff or whether he like, wouldn't it be interesting if like Darwin like read Mendel's things and was like, oh, that's silly.
3: Like, <laughs> would yeah. it? Would that have been available to Darwin at the time? Yeah, I don't know. So
1: He he apparently developed a lot of his work as he was a young man traveling around the world uh, mm. on the Beagle, right? Yeah. So he didn't have a large library to consult, and he was just looking at the stuff around him.
3: Yeah, and and with the lack of something like the internet nowadays, is where you get all your information, uh, there's a chance that he may have never come across Mendel's works. Yeah. Um, Being an Austrian monk and everything, I don't know, uh, I'm actually not too sure if Gregor published a lot of stuff in the traditional sense, or just documented it, and then it became this big rediscovery. I think it was very early. I don't think publishing at that point was... No. Anyway, back to Nettie. (laughs) So, um, during the early 1900s, it was already known to cytologists that an offspring inherits equal numbers of chromosomes from each parent, because this was just routinely observed under their microscopes. But nobody had been able to prove a link between Mendel's rules and the role of chromosomes, and what part, if any, did they play in heredity. And furthermore, nobody knew how the sex of an offspring was determined. Most scientists believe that sex was determined by external factors like temperature or the <laughs> nutrition that acted on a fertilized egg. Which
2: is true in some species.
3: Oh, in- yeah, of course. Like in, like in turtles.
2: And quickly on Gregor Mendel, uh, we do not know about Darwin's perspective, but we do know that Mendel had read The Origin of Species. And because oh. Gregor Mendel's work wasn't really well known till after his death, but uh, the reverse is not true of Darwin. So like it's
3: oh, that's interesting. Yeah,
2: and his and Gra- Mendel's ideas would only come much later on to influence and like thoroughly support Darwin's ideas. It's very mm-hmm. interesting.
3: Huh? There you go. Very cool. Um, so yeah, they a lot of people believe that sex determination was purely an external factor, and yeah, it's true in a lot of um, I believe reptiles. Yes. So turtles and all of that, where I think um, they'll bury the eggs, and the colder ones. Uh, Tend to be female. No, no, one...
2: the ho- that mostly, depending, again, it depends on the species. Mm. Mostly, the hotter it is, the more likely you are to get females. This is why, like, uh, another facet of glo- global warming, which is interesting, uh, is that we are seeing, especially in turtle populations, a lot of this, uh, the bias is swinging more and more towards females Yeah. as the temperature rises.
0: Gotta, like, pour some cold water on those <laughs> eggs. <laughs> well, I mean,
2: I don't know much about turtle mating habits, but maybe you want more females if you want to spread the species. I don't really know how. Oh, you
3: would definitely want more females yeah. because um, in a lot of different animals, females, if there's a lack of males, they can actually just.
2: They can share a male.
3: They can share <laughs> a male, and uh, under very certain conditions, they can. Change um, sex. Not turtles, not change sex, but they can uh, have um, offspring without the need of a partner. Oh, you mean straight uh, up just pathogenesis? Yeah. Where they,
2: yeah. I, yeah, actually, I don't know about turtles, but that could be. It, mm. it
3: happens in snakes. It happens in a lot of animals. So mm. um, you'd want a female. But anyways, Nettie received her grants. She got $1,000 to investigate problems relating to sex determination between the years of 1904 and 1905. She then went on to win an additional $1,000, which would have been massive during the time, for the Ellen Richards Prize for the Best Scientific Paper Written by a Woman. And that was Aww. for a study of the germ cells of Aphus rosea and Aphus onotheraea. In 1905, Nettie published a series of papers in which she demonstrated that the sex of an offspring is determined by the chromosomes it inherits from its parents. This body of work was called Studies in Spermatogenesis, and while she was studying mealworm beetles, she noticed that male beetles produce two kinds of sperm, one with a large chromosome and one with a small chromosome. When the sperm with the large chromosome fertilized eggs, they produce female offspring. And when the sperm with the small chromosome fertilized eggs, they produce male offspring. That's so cool. That's how they worked it out. I love it. Exactly. And in her papers, Nettie showed that an organism's sex is determined by these specific chromosomes. This pattern was also observed in other animals, including humans, and became known as the XY sex determination system. So males often tend to have XY, Y being the small chromosome, females are XX. And this was also the first bit of work that provided evidence that a physical characteristic, in this case, sex of an individual, is linked to differences in chromosomes. And like many great discoveries, most scientists did not embrace this theory immediately. And Edmund Wilson, who was Nettie's colleague and mentor at the time, and also a legendary biologist in his own right, uh, is actually more commonly cited as the discoverer of sex chromosomes. Edmund was working on the same question as Nettie and he published a similar similar result around the same time that she had published her findings. It is generally stated that Wilson independently obtained the same results as Nettie at the same time, but he apparently did not arrive to his conclusion on sex determination until after he had seen Nettie's results. Classic. Wilson's paper was published before Nettie's, and as the man with a higher reputation, it was he who was credited with the discovery. But even though their papers were similar, it was Netty who presented a stronger and ultimately more correct conclusion. That's outrageous. Uh, Edmund had, <laughs> I mean, he was also working um, on a model species on the same question, where males. Now, the model system that he was using. His males had one less chromosome than the female, so that's a lot less common in nature. And Nettie's model of X Y chromosomes in the mealworm beetles was a better representation uh, for the basis of human sex mm. determination.
2: So the other the other model was uh, like an X, X nothing X blank sort yeah. of system rather than. Well, we can talk. We should talk about different sex systems some other time.
3: Eventually, <laughs> and yeah. So who um, model better supported Mendel's theory on genetics? Uh, that some genes take on dominant roles and override the instructions of their gene pairs. Wilson still also believed that environmental, environmental factors played a role in determining sex, whereas Nettie said it was purely based on chromosomes. And at the time, neither view could be confirmed absolutely um, based on the discoveries, but throughout time, um, it did prove that Nettie was more correct. And unfortunately, it was Wilson who did get the credits And they should have at least been considered co-discoverers for this achievement, at least. Yeah. But, you know, Nettie continued to do research and teach for the rest of her life. She had a good scientific career despite starting late, and unfortunately, it did end too soon. She died of breast cancer in 1912. But, you know, in the decade prior to her death, she managed to contribute more to her field than many scientists with much longer careers. And during her brief career in science, she managed to publish about 40 papers... Wow. And is widely regarded as having expanded the field of embryology and genetics. And she was able to attain full researcher status. And yeah, she, I mean, she did do a lot and she has been recognized. I believe two years ago for 155th birthday, she got a Google Doodle. That's cool. So that's when you know you made it. Yeah. <laughs> no,
2: I'm not going to lie. That is how you know you made it.
0: <laughs> not a
3: Wikipedia page, a Google Doodle. Yeah. Yeah. I love so it. Nettie Stevens, our snubbed scientist of the week. Your natural reaction here on Z
0: Digital, and we have our special guest in the studio, Professor Tom Stace. Thank you so much for coming in again.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Could you tell me a little bit about for, for people who don't understand physics, like like us? Could you tell us what you actually do?
1: Uh, so apart from, well, I had, I had a, a colleague who was asked this in a in a very important interview, and he said he walks around the department drinking coffee. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, you might There's want to a little, sell a bit more than that. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I what I work on is is quantum physics, um, and that's the the physics theory that was developed over the last hundred years, starting in the, at, at the end of the nineteenth century. There were some puzzles in in physics which were unresolved, and quantum mechanics was the answer to that. And it's really the the subject that that took off in the nineteen twenties about you know how how do electrons uh, work and how do atoms form. And what's the nature of light, is it particles or waves? And, and so that's the general domain of quantum mechanics, and that's what I work on. And I mean, as I said before, the Center for Engineered Quantum Systems, and we're, we're trying to understand how do you take these, these physical principles and turn them into technologies that are, are useful to people.
2: So so on that topic, so for people at home, like, what, what is that sort of dividing line between sort of classical physics and quantum physics?
1: Well, that's that's a actually a very deep mm. philosophical question, yeah. and uh, and people have been struggling with that for a long time. So <laughs> we have uh, practical mathematical tools for calculating a lot of stuff, and um, and at some point you have to stop using Newton's laws and you have to start using Schrodinger's equation, which is the governing equation of quantum mechanics. Um, but our everyday experiences of things that that behave as if they're described by Newton's laws, like the things on this desk, the computers on this desk, they sit there and and they uh, they they don't have any un- uncertainty to them. But when you get down to uh, microscopic things, atoms and so on, uh, the laws of, of probability theory start to to take over, and and the fact that things have intrinsic uncertainty.
2: Yeah. So would it be like correct to say something along the lines of when we get like zo- when you start zooming in. Sort of on an like atomic scale, a lot of the the laws, the really hard, what seem like really hard laws to us, like macroscopic beings, sort of start to break down a little bit.
1: That, that's a that's a good way to think about it. So so one of the one of the strange things in quantum mechanics is that uh, an object can be in a superposition, as it's called, of of two different states at once. So so you might think of a tennis ball on a table, and you you'd say. It's common sense to say that it's in one one spot on the table, but when you get down to microscopic things like atoms, you can put a single atom in in two places at once, or, or more places at once, and and that's not just a metaphor. It's been done. People have built uh, experiments where uh, the only way to understand what's going on is that the particles that are going through the experiment weren't in one spot or another spot. They must have been in some combination of those configurations uh, before before the end of the experiment. So. So it's really a fundamental fact that uh, when you get to a small enough thing the uh, the confidence you have that it behaves uh, as a as a regular object breaks down.
2: Yeah, and this is also very important not just in like experimental positions uh, we've seen in uh, there was a great paper in like 2012 that showed that photons are actually in two positions at once during photosynthesis mm-hmm. and like that might be actually fundamental to how plants produce the reaction that literally lets all other life on Earth live. <laughs> right. So this is uh, these are actually incredibly important questions.
3: Wait, so a photon being both a particle and a wave may be responsible for how photosynthesis occurs? Oh,
2: something about uh, when the photon strikes the surface of the plant's chloroplast, it exists on the outside and the inside of that at the same time. And they're not quite entirely sure about how that w- works into the process. But uh, I will try and find this paper and we'll come back to
1: it some other time because it is fascinating.
3: Definitely. So, so Tom. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. Well,
1: j- just to, to yeah. go into a bit more detail on that. So, the the point is that it, when when light is absorbed in a in a uh, in a chlorophyll aggregate, the, the chloroplast. Yeah. The 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 route from where it's absorbed to the the reaction center where it turns into some useful thing, and a free electron, for instance, which the plant then uses to to live. Uh, there can be multiple paths, and so the question is, which one did it take? Did did the did the, the did the energy follow one trajectory or another trajectory? And the answer is, well, it must have taken both, in fact. And that's that's this idea of interference, that um, in which you know, particles, things that you think of with definite position, in fact, can have several configurations at once, and those configurations can interfere with each other in the way that waves interfere. And um, we can go into that if you're interested.
2: Well, I think one of the Good experiments to demonstrate this is the two slit experiment, but uh, it's really better to see that. Yeah, you can't
0: <laughs> explain it over radio. <laughs> I would really recommend people
2: go out and YouTube it. I'm sure I, there are some great YouTube videos of the the double slit experiment, and I would recommend them because like, I don't know how well we can describe.
1: Well, there's a, there's a very easy way to describe it in terms okay, of go on <laughs> uh, throwing pebbles into a pond, which everyone's done at some point in their life. And if you throw one pebble in, you get ripples uh, emanating from it. And if you throw two pebbles in where the ripples cross you get interference and that's the phenomenon where the where the peaks of the waves add together and the troughs of the waves uh, subtract from each other and and the peaks and troughs together cancel out and so that that phenomenon that the the behavior of the water cares about both sources both parts of the wave uh, is the notion of interference so is this what we mean by probability waves is that like the peaks and troughs of the different probability waves cancel each other out and then it sort of collapse. That's right. So so an electron, for instance, or an atom or a photon, uh, or even a large molecule like carbon-60 buckyballs have been shown to have this wave-like property. And so when when you, you send a buckyball through two different channels, uh, the, the outcome of the thing is that it went through both. In fact, there was some probability wave that went through one path and a probability wave that went through the other. And what comes out the other end is the superposition, or the and and that demonstrates interference, where where part of the wave added up and part of the wave subtracted.
0: That's very cool. That's mm. that's like I didn't even think about that kind of thing. So there's
1: some crazy I- ideas out there to actually send a virus, so through through a t- double slit experiment, and 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 the reason why that's crazy is because it's debatable whether a virus is itself alive, but you know it's it, it's it's debatable. Yes. And so then the then the the status would be that you've done a quantum interference experiment with. A living a object. Yeah. Oh wow, that is actually fascinating.
0: <laughs> is his face just lit up in the in the <laughs> studio here? Uh,
2: sorry, I don't want to d- dominate the conversation. I feel like I'm taking over from my co-host.
3: <laughs> well, I I just wanted to know um, whether you're more on the theoretical side or practical side or a bit of both.
1: Well, I'm a theorist, but I work closely with experimentalists. So so my day job is doing doing sums and driving. You know, computer programs but uh, I think a lot about the experimental results that my colleagues at Uq and and elsewhere around the world uh, are working on
0: so with um we, we kind of discuss this a little bit but to me quantum is this like abstract thing that's kind of over there and it's really difficult to think about as like a like you know in two places at once like you can think about it with cats or with ripples and well, stuff but actually considering how it works
2: yeah, well it seems to like violate like, we're macroscopic objects, and we're used to these macroscopic laws being hard and fast, and it just breaks our entire conception of how those <laughs> yeah. things sort of operate.
0: So how would you... So we kind of... Is there a... There isn't a limit... I mean, if we're talking about viruses doing this, that's something that I would have never thought would be a quantum yeah, system. Thing. It seems like a yeah. bit too big. <laughs> yeah. Is there? Is there like a... Is there kind of a hard and fast rule? What What makes something quantum? Is there? Is there something that... You can go, okay, this, this breaks this rule. Or is it just if you get small enough, it's well, going to break it? The
1: short it. answer is no. There is no hard <laughs> and fast rule. And So so there's this, this notion called the Heisenberg cut, which is a... Uh, it, it, in physics, it's a principle that at some point, when things get big enough or hot enough or energetic enough, they should stop behaving quantum mechanically. But but it's really a hypothesis, and, it, and there is no point that we've discovered where this, this sort of transition from classical to quantum is a hard cut. And so... Really, it's just a question if if you make a thing cold enough uh, and and run the experiment precisely enough. So far, we haven't found any violations of quantum mechanics. So, in principle, you could get uh, do a double slit experiment with a cat or a human being. Now, if you do the calculation, this is a fun calc for the undergrads. Okay, how long does it take for that experiment to run? And the answer is, it'll take the age of the universe or (laughs) multiples of that. So, in fact, we won't see it. But but you know, in principle, but you never know if you don't go. Well, I don't know, it might take a while. <laughs> it might take a while, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's crazy. So the next question I had for you when this laptop opens up again, um, are quantum ideas and systems being used in the real world? Is there something that you could, like my laptop, or is there something that actually exists or like technology that we're using that uses quantum mechanics?
1: Absolutely. So uh, in, in my area, we sort of divide the quantum history into several phases so there was an early phase where people were really just trying to understand the physics and um, and then there was a sort of technological phase where which which we call now uh, a bit hokey, you know it's the, the the first quantum revolution which was where people were using principles of quantum mechanics to do some some things now those things were uh, somewhat controversial like developing nuclear weapons um, but also things like the laser so in the 1960s, they built the first laser, which was uh, really motivated by uh, ideas that Einstein had a, a few decades before that. But, but to build a laser, you really need to understand quantum mechanics. So lasers, uh, atomic physics, um, and also building clocks, uh, very advanced clocks, relies on knowledge of quantum mechanics, which was developed in the first half of the last century. Are we talking like atomic clocks and that kind of thing? Exactly. Or, yeah. So the most accurate clo- clocks in the world are uh, atomic fountain clocks. Um, and uh, and the ones that are used on the GPS satellites that you're using on your phone to find out where you are, are quantum mechanical objects.
3: That's, that's very cool. so cool yeah um, so I see one of your featured projects is on autonomous robotic flights how how is quantum mechanics involved in that? because I'm really curious.
1: Oh that one so um that's an old project and in fact uh, yeah let's that, let's uh, not go too far along that that route because um, uh, the status that one's.
3: Okay. Oh, no, okay. No, yeah. Fair, yeah. fair enough. Fair
1: enough. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds it sounds really cool. So I'm guessing you're just using quantum mechanics to try and
1: no, that's got no quantum mechanics, and no. that was a crazy idea actually. So uh, an uncle of mine has a, a farm in northern New South Wales, and one of the things he he does is it grows it uh, grows custard apples, but he also has bees, so he's a he's a an apiarist, beekeeper. an apiarist. And um, uh, he and I were sitting on his back deck one one day a few a few years ago, talking about. Um, about his farm, and uh, he has this problem with um, uh, uh, parrots that come and eat his fruit, you know? And so so we, <laughs> we're happens, thinking, well, yeah. what are you going to do about that? And and he says, you know, parrots are really smart, smart. So you you walk around and you just try and scare them away, and and they, they fly off, and then they come back. And then you walk around again and try and scare them away, and they, they jump to the next branch. And then the third time, they don't even bother. And so, so we were, you know, we we're thinking, how do you stop these things going after your fruit? And and, and this is the idea for <laughs> using uh, drones to fly about and, and uh, you scare, know, the scare out. them. Very cool. Lovely. Harmlessly could be the objective. <laughs> yeah. want, we want to stress. <laughs> I had a, a, an undergrad working on that project, and uh, I'm a bit surprised it's still up there, actually. <laughs> no parrots were harmed in the making
3: of no, this drone. No, <laughs> no
2: that's very we cool. Did, we did
1: harm some drones, though.
0: <laughs> You're on Natural Reaction here on Z Digital, and we're in the studio with Professor Tom Stace from Equus. Um, which is not at the University of Queensland. I wrote that down, but it's not correct. It is a Australian. No, you didn't even say that. It's... ALC. It's, it's so, international. So,
1: no, so Equus is... Uh, it's across five universities. Its main node is the University of Queensland, but it also includes Macquarie University, ANU, University of Western Australia, Sydney University... Okay. And UQ.
0: So it is. I can say Australian then. That's okay.
1: And certainly, you can say it's it's uh, at UQ. We yeah. we run the thing. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah.
0: You, you you do go to UQ most days. All right. So I'm I'm based at UQ. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: They pay my pay my wage.
0: So that works. That's <laughs> we'll go with that then. So um, what we we're talking about before the break is the World Science Festival. Um. So what are you guys actually doing there?
1: So uh, well, the World Science Festival, I'm sure you know about, has been going for a few years, and uh, with Equus, we were uh lucky enough to be refunded uh, by the australian research council a year ago a couple of years ago and uh, one of the things we proposed we'd do for the new one is to run a, uh, a, a computer game competition called the quantum computer games uh, contest and so it's the idea is for people to write uh, a computer game that's motivated by themes in quantum mechanics so it doesn't it, have
0: to be an actual quantum game it doesn't have to be on a quantum computer well or anything. That,
1: that was that was a, a little joke that we had. You know. Is it a quantum <laughs> computer game, or is it a quantum computer game? Yeah. And, um, uh, that said, if you can make a quantum computer game, you should probably still write in. So <laughs> we might next year have a category for games running on quantum computers. <laughs> that so you might have seen Google has now got a seventy-two qubit machine that yeah. they've they've uh, they've told us about.
2: Okay, yeah, actually that's on a natural, like a nice little natural continuation here shall we talk about how uh qubits and quantum com- uh, qubits sort of enable quantum computing to far outpace yeah. regular classical computing
0: what is a what is a quantum computer
1: sure we, well we maybe we get back to the, the world science festival in a bit but so what is a quantum computer so i already told you about the first uh, quantum revolution which was building lasers and clocks and uh nuclear power um that we're sort of in in a phase now where we're wanting to take advantage of more of the strange uh, phenomena in quantum mechanics and and one of the things that we we know we can do if only we can build a good enough uh, device is to do uh, computations using quantum physics um, and you might say well why bother with that and and the answer is uh, computational complexity so can I take a, a quick digression Go into that? Your life. Do it so when when a, when you ask somebody to solve a problem on a computer you need to most things are really fast you know so computers are great for doing sums and spreadsheets and whatnot yeah. um and and but you can still give a, a computer a problem that's that's really difficult to solve so there's some famous ones like the traveling salesman problem where you you are given a there's a, a bunch of rivers to cross and you can only cross them once sure that, that kind one. of thing yeah. so traveling salesman is a logistics problem and the idea is you've got a bunch of cities to visit and you want to get between them as as efficiently as yeah. possible now that's a hard problem to solve uh, to find the the fastest way to to travel between them uh, another one is packing uh, packing stuff so you know if you go on a camping trip and you've got a small car and a lot of gear how do you how do you fit all that gear into the into the car and it's a difficult if, if you've got a small car and a lot of stuff it's a difficult problem um so that's Solving those problems, even with a computer, can take a long time. And we know that there are some problems that a computer can't do uh, very well, and one of those is factoring numbers. So if I tell you 15 is 5 by 3, you won't be surprised. But if I give you a 200-digit number, factoring that into its prime factors is a very difficult problem. Oh, yeah. And that's... That... Even for me, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's it's an important uh, mathematical problem, actually, because whenever you see the HTTPS uh, logo on your web browser, it's using... Fundamentally, the, that fact to encrypt uh, information with whoever your uh, your web browser is communicating, like your bank. So, if you're doing financial transactions, at its root, you're using that that fact. Now, it turns out that there are there are problems, including factoring, that a quantum computer could solve if we could only build a a, a big enough one that a classical computer couldn't do. Is this because of a just a an increase in their computing ability or is there something about fundamentally about how they calculate that is different it's a, it's it's a fundamental issue so it's not that we could we can somehow make a much bigger quantum computer than a classical computer it's that fundamentally the we can run an algorithm uh, a set of routines on a qu- on a quantum computer that we couldn't possibly run on the computers that are here in this room or even a large supercomputer and uh, and and the the quantum algorithms we have for things like factoring have a, a lower computational complexity than than factoring on a classical computer. Okay.
0: So, so what I was going to ask, so Google's done its thing, right? So Google's mm-hmm. got 72 qubits, right? That sounds impressive kind of, but it's still like still 72 bits. So it's still quite a small amount of computing power. Is there a point where like that those kind of questions that you're asking, like those kind of equations, is there a number of qubits that you go okay, well now that we can make these kind of um we can do these kind of questions. We can work out these quantum compu- like quantum questions.
1: Yeah. So there's there's a few answers to that, but the, the the shortest one is that a few hundred to a few thousand qubits would be enough to do to run factoring algorithms that are are practically useful. If what you want to do is to disrupt HTTPS, which you know is debatable. Okay. But. Um, there, I mean, there's another really important problem which we believe quantum computers will be able to solve, which is simulating chemistry. Now that's important because if you want to design new drugs or you want to understand um, biomolecules, then photosynthesis for example, then being able to simulate the the chemical processes accurately is a thing that ordinary computers, supercomputers can't do. To give people an idea, uh, brute forcing
2: chemical, I guess, sort of hypothesized chemical uh, structures is an incredibly new i guess incredibly important field of chemistry right now people just like they mathematically brute force things that are, might work chemically
3: well there's a there are um a lot of chemists who run they run programs first to test the reactions and then do it in the lab and see whether that theoretical in silico design actually works in the similar manner to um in, in what Viva. they yeah, yeah. what that, they could do in the lab
1: that's absolutely right the the, the problem with the chemistry software that we've got at the moment is that there are approximations in there mathematical approximations that we can't we can't really control and so you can run the computer yeah. and you get some idea about what's going on but you have no confidence about it mm. but nevertheless people have made important discoveries so there's uh, people in sydney university who uh, who did simulations of uh, catalyst design for um for making fertilizers, so fertilize. What's the one of you probably knows the process?
2: Oh, we, we, we the actual process for yeah. So
1: there's some process for for oh, fertilizer yeah. manufacture. it
2: depending on what fertilizer, like nitration and that kind of thing? We're just enriching the nitrates and stuff like that. Well, it's, so
3: isn't it like um, methyl, uh, or something? It eludes like me. There's yeah.
1: a name for the process. It's named after somebody. But, oh wait. Um,
2: oh, do you mean the specific uh, the the German the yeah, named yeah, after yeah, German yeah, guys?
1: Yeah. The reason World War One could happen. Um, something like that. Yeah. But in any case that. The discovery of new catalysts for for industrial processes—you only need to save a fraction of a percent in energy cost or time—and it becomes a very important uh, economic. Yeah, uh, if you think about the scale that these things are made on, like fertilizers manufactured in the scale of hundreds of
2: tons, so a uh, uh, saving hundreds and billions, hundred millions of tons. Millions of tons. Yeah. yeah. So if you a scale of zero point one percent
1: increase over hundreds of millions of tons is still quite a few thousand yeah. tonnes. Absolutely, like, and so so that's that's an important problem that we think computer. Uh, quantum computers could could assist us with is chemical design,
0: and so that's going to be a few more than a hundred qubits.
1: So that that requires more than a few hundred qubits. But um, the the point is that it couldn't. There's no classical computer that we could design that would would run those those uh, simulations.
2: So I suppose that's like a question I have is a, uh, what about the quantum computers allow give us access to these other algorithms that classical computers simply can't run.
1: So, so again, the, you know, this, this, this notion that there was this quantum uh, revolution in the mid-20th century was based on this uh, idea of interference and superposition, so the, the wave-like properties of particles. And what we're talking about now really relies on another strange uh, fact in quantum mechanics, which is this, this idea of entanglement. And, and entanglement really is the statement that not just, not just that particles can be in more than one place at once. But that a particle over here and a particle over there can can have uh, can be correlated with each other. They can have properties that are, are correlated across space, um, and furthermore, you can't explain those correlations classically. So, can I give you a, a short example? Yes, please do. You know, I could I could take two coins and make one of them heads, one of them tails. Pass them to a friend, and uh, without looking, we know that we're going to get uh, the opposite. Uh, of, uh, we're going to get opposite outcomes. One person is going to get heads and one person is going to get tails, no matter how we shuffle the coins as long as I've, I did this trick of, of, of making sure they were heads, one heads and one tails. So that's a classical correlation. Now, quantum mechanics has this property called entanglement, and so I can prepare two quantum coins, which could be an atom, for instance, or, or a photon, a pair of photons, and uh, share one across uh, a room or across uh, the universe, and they'll be anti-correlated. That is, the outcome of a measurement on one particle and the outcome of measurement on the second particle will be exactly opposite, no matter what way you measure these things. And so that that's a, a surprising uh, thing in quantum mechanics, and it's not explicable uh, uh, classically. And c- actually, going back to the uh, the discussion about women in physics, so there's a you know a tangent to a tangent here. So uh, <laughs> Jocelyn Bell, who I think you discussed last. Yeah last week um she she's famous for not not getting the nobel prize and <laughs> uh, and there's in fact another person by the surname of bell who also didn't get the nobel prize and so uh, jointly, surname. Uh, yeah that's right <laughs> jointly they're called the nobel no bell the nobel prize in fact it's it's not just uh, not just two nobels but uh to no J-Bells, because the other <laughs> Bell I'm thinking of is a man called John Bell, who, uh, <laughs> oh. who came up with this, hypo- this theorem, which which really proved that you can't explain uh, quantum entanglement just with uh, some sort of notion of classical correlations. And so that's what really we're talking about in quantum computers, is that, that the qubits, the particles that make up the quantum computer, can be correlated or anti-correlated in this way that's not understandable by classical probability distributions.
3: So. It's basically a system that exists in multiple states rather than, say, a two-dimensional state. It's more like four-dimensionals. Well, an infinite-dimensional state. Is well, that that's, correct? that's
1: getting really close. So one, one, part, one bit in, in your computer can be in the state zero or one, and it can only be in one of those states at any given time. But a quantum bit can be in both states, zero and one, at one time. And then you ask about two bits. Well, there's four possible states of two bits, zero, 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 one, one, zero, one, one. And a, two quantum bits can in fact be in all po- four possible states simultaneously. Three bits can can have eight possible configurations, and eight uh, three oh. qubits can be in eight possible configurations, and it grows exponentially. So, uh, with n qubits, some number of qubits, you have an exponential number of states that it can simultaneously represent.
0: So much more computing power, basically.
1: Yeah. Um, m- more than that, it's not just like taking a, a whole collection of. Uh, classical computers and building a big cluster out of them. It's that fundamentally the system is representing all possible states of all possible calculations in one object at once.
3: So with quantum computers becoming very much a thing, they obviously are gonna be used a lot for higher end processing when it comes to a lot of science research. Uh, silico models and all of those chemistry reactions, as well as I think eventually we'll go into a lot of the bigger companies like banks and that. Do you see any purpose in the everyday person having a quantum computer? Do you ever believe it's going to get to the state as current laptops and all of that are? Do you... I don't believe something like that is really necessary for us to have this massive processing power, but do you think technology will advance to that point? Well, there's
1: there's a range of things. So Quantum computing is the... the uh, long-distance uh, goal of, of people in my my field, but there's a lot of stuff that will happen on the way to that. So one of the things that we we think we can do much better with control of quantum systems is is sensing, so m- measuring stuff. And uh, so I've got colleagues in Adelaide who work on biosensing and using quantum mechanics principles at the heart of sensors for detecting uh, d- different uh, biologically relevant compounds. So, so one person I'm... I'm uh, I do a lot of work with uh, is thinking about how do you detect detect uh, molecules that are emitted by lung cancer. So, so doing spectroscopy of your breath uh, could reveal whether or not you've got lung cancer. You know, so so there, there's lots of potential medical sensing applications where where you really need to use the sensitivity of of quantum mechanics to to help you understand what's going on. Um, so. Whether it come, whether you know, import, it's going to be important to the everyday person to have a, a full scale quantum computer, I don't know. But if you go back to the nineteen fifties when people were starting to develop digital computers, there was a famous quote by I think the president of IBM, who said he only sees a market for five digital yes. computers <laughs> ever. And you know, we now carry around a thing that's vastly more powerful in our pockets. Yeah, we're, humans are really bad at predicting how these
2: things are going to go. I remember in World War One there was even a uh a quote from a general saying that planes are a useful toy but I'll never see them in military application <laughs>
0: <laughs> funny when everyone else has got a plane shooting at you <laughs> yeah. um, so let's go back to the quantum oh, to World Science World Festival because we, we definitely uh, went in a bit of a tangent there but
2: now you know more about um, quantum computing so yeah
0: so quantum, quantum games that we're talking about here can you explain like have you got an example of one of these games that that you know, it's is it using quantum principles or it's not an actual quantum computer?
1: No, game? so it runs on an ordinary computer. Yeah. and there will be some uh, Mac computers, I guess. Can I? It, you, you, I can say Mac, yeah, can't yeah, I. It's yeah not yeah. ABC, is it? Say so that. anyway, there'll be some computers there that people can come and play the games that some that various teams have written over the last six months. Uh, a bunch of those teams are undergraduate uh, student developers at different universities, and there's some uh, independent developers, but but the the core was really just to write a computer game that uh, takes advantage of quantum principles so you might think well why bother with that but you know the game Angry Birds is a game that uses Newtonian mechanics to do something fun apparently I don't play it but, you know, it's like, it's <laughs> addictive maybe not fun right. yeah. like- the point is that physics when you turn it into a game can 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 be great fun and, and the question was can somebody do that with quantum mechanics?
2: There's a great fr- oh, I'm sorry to whoever quote whoever's quote this is but it's a Play is the in the coin by which we learn. Uh, is literally because like, play is like a, a system of incentives that encourage people to better understand the system they're interacting with and uh, with the consequences. Normally, when you do something in real life, your consequences can be a bit downstream, so you don't really learn from the action that you did. But the game shortens that down, and uh, this is why animals play when they're when they're young, and this is why we play when we're young. It's incredibly instructive to how we learn.
0: I could have a whole discussion about gamification, but we won't. That's yeah. a whole different like, topic but, yeah, there. Yeah. We <laughs> should
1: I've, have it. I've learned a lot having called this, uh, put this competition out about, about the notion of games. And um, there, were, there were a few games out there that had some sort of quantum notion behind them already bef- before we started this. And there was one out of uh, University of Southern California called Quantum Chess. And if you have a uh, YouTube handy, Look up uh, quantum chess. It's a, there's a great uh, twelve minute or fifteen minute trailer for this computer game, and it stars Paul Rudd, who I gather is a fascinating a uh, film star, as well as <laughs> Stephen Hawking. He's now ed- late, unfortunately. Oh yeah, but, now late. Um, but it's a hilarious, hilarious movie that uh, a friend of mine actually uh, in in Caltech uh, arranged as as part of a promotion a few couple of years ago so
0: can you actually play quantum chess yeah so you can
1: download quantum chess and it's it's a it's a well you should watch the youtube video i'll I'll give my very brief summary it's a variant of chess where you can uh, take quantum moves as well as regular moves um and and the video is hilarious so yeah Yeah. go ahead and watch that
0: we'll definitely have to check it out We'll,
1: we'll get someone to tweet it out as well
0: so how can these people i mean obviously not quantum chess but the other games that we've been talking about today how can people actually play them
1: well so um Come along on uh, Saturday and Sunday this weekend to uh, to the Queensland Museum. Uh, we'll be on the top floor. Uh, I don't know the precise coordinates, but um, come along and you'll you'll be able to uh, sit down and play play the games and watch other people play play them. There'll also be a bunch of people from my research centre, so we'll be able to uh, talk to the general public about quantum mechanics. Any questions you've got, come along and there'll be people there to, to have a chat to.
2: There's also be a bunch of events for like you know uh, street science. Which uh, was there last year the kids loved it uh, there's some lectures and talks great time people should come on down yeah if yeah. you
0: haven't looked up um, World Science Festival I would recommend it there's a bunch of events that you can go to and it's, it's yeah there's, there's a lot of stuff happening in Brisbane this week so definitely get out there have a go and head down and play some quantum games yeah because yeah it's not, it's not about biology Gotta gotta talk about those physics as well.
2: Will Will the quantum games be like available for other people? Will some of them be available for people who can't make it to like download or play online or anything like that?
1: So the way we structured it was that the people who wrote the games own the games, and so the hope is that they'll they'll continue to develop them and make them available. There are uh, if you go to equis.org, you'll find a link to the quantum games competition website, and there's some YouTube videos of the of the game play. So that's what that's what. The judges used to uh, to shortlist down to the games that we're showing on the weekend, uh, but and if you want to play them, you should uh, let the people who wrote the games and made the videos know through, let's say, their YouTube channels and uh, tell them you'd like to buy it. Buy it off them, and uh, I'm sure they'll love it. Yeah, they they might have the next quantum Angry Birds. <laughs> quantum Angry Birds.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, I that's trademarked by me now. Quantum yeah. Angry Birds. <laughs> I know, I know, I own that, just to so clear
3: that. I think we've got it on like recording that it wasn't you. <laughs> yeah, but I,
2: I'm registering it, so <laughs> it's called patent trolling.
3: Yeah, the only uh, quantum game I could think of is like Snake, potentially with having the little thing in like. Two different states.
1: <laughs> Two well, different. we had a, a dry run of this a couple of years ago in one of our big centre meetings, and uh, and somebody came up with the idea of a quantum Mario Kart. And so, your your if you get a, a quantum entanglement uh, icon, you know, you become entangled with some other. Mario Kart and uh, if they crash you crash <laughs> oh, that is the, the worst yeah. that
3: sounds amazing yeah. I love
0: it that's so cool so we currently have um, physicist professor Tom Stace in the studio with us talking about all things quantum all things physics World Science Festival and just general weird quantum stuff Actually, I think that's about right I
2: should have a bit of a question going back a little bit uh, when you talked about how the exponential growth when you talk about quantum computing, because like each time you add a, a bit, they can because it can be in all the configurations at once. That's right. Uh, can that be used to store memory, like
1: it, to, as like a memory storage? That's a thing? great question, and the short answer is no. It Damn. can't. So, <laughs> a, a, so even though quantum mechanics is weird, there's there's a lot that you can't do as well. And if you could do those things, then then we could do them classically as well. So uh, yeah, it doesn't. It's not a. It's not a, a cure-all. It's not going to. Solve world peace, but it can do some things very well.
3: Mm. So yeah. I look forward to a lot more higher order processing in the future, rather than more memory.
1: Well, that's that's what uh, Google and IBM and and the Microsoft are trying to do with their with their uh, industrial scale quantum computers. Their, their research that they're doing at the moment is really trying to develop a a platform that can solve some of these really hard uh, problems. Um,
0: How many uh, years away is it?
1: That's <laughs> a, that's another good question. Um, well, you know the. If you go back six years or so, the the record number of qubits that had been entangled was maybe four or five or six, depending on the details. And now I've got uh, Google with 72 qubits. So how long's a piece of string, basically? Well, you know, if, if you, go, again, go back to the early days of the transistor, uh, if you look at what, what the first transistor looks like, it was a lump of stuff it sat on, you know, on a, in a lab bench. And, and it, you know, you, if, you, if you threw it at somebody, it would hurt them. If you uh, but dropped now, it, you had a serious probability of breaking your foot. <laughs> well, not quite. It was it was still small enough, but you know, wires sticking out and so on. But but now you've got a billion of them in your pocket, and so uh, when when you take uh, new physics and you package it up into uh, with with good engineering, it, things can move quickly. But the thing is, quantum computing and other quantum technologies are still uh, there. Is still a lot of research that we need to do to understand uh, fundamental questions about what you can do with them, and also. How you actually build these things? How do you deploy them?
0: So one thing I'm going to switch gears here. Um, earlier in the week, Stephen, so 14th of March, which is what a couple of days ago now, um, Stephen Hawking, um, died, which
3: is exceptionally sad. I was really surprised. I kind of I was like, oh no, he's going to live forever. But no, considering like what when he was originally diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, he was only given how many years to live? Uh, ALS. No. Oh, sorry, um, ALS. Yeah. Not even no. close. enough. No, no, no. <laughs> not no.
0: even close. Well, like
2: they're both degenerative, but like they're they're both terrible. Let's just leave it there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so, um, obviously, we wanted to talk a bit about Stephen Hawking, and I feel like you're probably better to discuss the physics than we are. Um, but he, a lot of his a lot of his discoveries were to do with um, black holes and the way that it's it's event horizons and and how things come out of black holes rather than just enter into them. In in the most simplest term, I think Th-
1: that's right. I mean, he was. What he was famous for, one of the things he was famous for uh, as a physicist was um, Hawking radiation and so the idea there is that um, a black hole is black in, it's not black in the sense that everything, uh, no, nothing ever comes out of it, it's black in the sense of black body radiation. So uh, if you if you remember back to first year physics or high school physics, when you heat a thing up it uh, it radiates and if you make it hot enough it glows. So. The incandescent lights that are now no longer legal uh, to buy, they're they, they are, uh, radiating because they're hot. And the, be- the best things at radiating are, are black things. Now, it turns out that uh, people thought black holes just absorbed everything that, that came near them. But what Hawking showed is, in fact, uh, that they, they emit light in the same way that an incandescent globe emits light. Um, and so Hawking radiation is the thermal radiation from a black hole. Um but it, it, it itself is a quantum mechanical effect. So th- the fact that black holes radiate because they have some temperature comes about because of the uh, interaction of subatomic particles near the event horizon. So the event horizon is the point in space-time where uh, if you cross it, you, you inevitably fall into the black hole and you, you, you never come out. But at that point, at that, at the event horizon... Uh, there's a, a quantum mechanical, well, all throughout space, there's this quantum mechanical uh, idea that uh, that particles and their antiparticles spontaneously appear and disappear, and so what Hawking realized was that if you have an event horizon, you can locally have this this uh, spontaneous uh, uh, appearance of of a particle-antiparticle pair, and one of them can fall into the black hole, and the other one, if it happens to be just outside the event horizon, radiates off.
2: Oh, and this like creates a, a break in the symmetry of like. Of, of particles and antiparticles?
1: No, so that's, well, that's a good question. I, I don't think anyone's uh, uh, made that link, but um, the, the the point is that the black hole, which classically just looks like it absorbs everything, when you include quantum mechanical effects at the event horizon, it looks like it emits this light at, at a temperature.
0: Actually, um, talking about Stephen Hawking, I recently um, picked up a copy of A Brief History of Time, which is one of the first books I think he wrote, and it was it's still very relevant today. I think there's an updated copy. So now, if you don't know anything about Stephen Hawking's theories and the universe and want to know more, I would totally recommend giving that one a read because it is definitely a, it's a really like a really good book um, for people who don't understand those kind of um, physics
3: concepts. His daughter also wrote a book. Um, it was in conjunction with Stephen. I think they've collaborated on a few books, and there was a brief a history of time, which is a little bit more of a simplified version of a, oh. a brief history of time. Right. Um, if I'm not mistaken. But Tom, apparently you um, knew Stephen Hawking or you interacted with him a no, few No, well, I was
1: in the same... I did my PhD in Cambridge and then uh, there's Cambridge is, is a bit unusual because it has three physics departments. So there's the Cavendish Lab and then there's Department of Applied Maths and Theoretical Physics and then there's an astronomy uh, lab. And the fact there's three is sort of accidents of history and, and uh, <laughs> politics. But um, so I did my PhD in the Cavendish lab and then moved to uh, Applied Maths and Theoretical Physics, which is where Stephen Hawking uh, did his work over his, his career. Um, and uh, so I had a few a few uh, run-ins with him, almost literally in one case. Uh, I was riding my bike the wrong way down <laughs> uh, one of the streets in Cambridge past the Cambridge University Bookshop, which is across the road from Trinity College. And uh, he was coming out of the bookshop and because um, <laughs> I was herring along late for something, uh, I nearly cleaned him up. But in oh. fact, because I think that uh, that wheelchair of his was pretty pretty uh, well built, would have cleaned me. up. In
3: fact, um I yeah. imagine it would have had some speed to it.
1: Uh, not his one, but I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also another another time, uh, he came down. He'd, he'd go. He'd come out for lunch, and uh, he'd um, come and sit with different groups of people. And and my research group was sitting around having lunch, and he came and joined us. A couple of times. Um, the first time is unfortunately his voice machine had broken. Oh, no. So uh, it was a bit difficult communicating with him, of course. But uh, it happened to be that the Ashes were playing, and I think it was the fifth test. Uh, in 2005, and did so we win? Right. Did we win that one? I didn't, we didn't know. Damn. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so
0: you're actually not the only person that I've heard that had stories about nearly hitting or hitting Stephen Hawking. There was um, and uh, I think a person on Twitter who was posting who said something similar. Who was like, "Yep, no, I worked in the I, I worked in the same kind of lab at that time, and I um, yeah, went down the road and like came out between two parked cars apparently, and yeah."
2: Now Stephen actually was onto it. He just does
1: this to people. <laughs> just just goes yeah, out in front of I wouldn't them. put it put it past him. He, uh, another time we went to watch a movie. I think it was Spider Man. Is that about right? Two thousand and five or so. Yeah. Uh, I
3: think so. Tobey Maguire.
1: Yeah, that one. And uh, uh, he was he was sat at the front of the the theatre. But the only reason I noticed was because I saw somebody driving a computer and uh, you know flicking backwards and forwards. And I thought, oh gosh, that's a bit annoying. Like why why are they <laughs> fiddling around with the computer? Oh, that's Stephen Hawking obviously writing sentences to communicate with yeah. his, his uh his um the person he was with. And I did think, oh, maybe I should go up to him and ask him to be quiet. You know, <laughs> busy, <but> I didn't. <laughs> <laughs>
3: that would be hilarious. He apparently know. had an amazing sense of humour. Like, yeah, just... absolutely. Oh, yeah. and the John
0: Oliver video is another great one. If you want to kind of look back on his life, it, it's hilarious. John Oliver kind of has a discussion with him about, you know, quantum physics. or oh, no, um, space and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then you know he goes, well, there's, there's thousands of universes. Uh, is there one of them where like I'm smarter than you? To John Oliver, <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And there's also one where you're funny <laughs>
1: <laughs> well there, there was yeah i mean it was it was a great popularizer of, of science you know and of, obviously there was his his book um uh and he also made various bets with people famous uh, uh physics bets so one of them was about actually uh, th- this question of how does quantum mechanics and general relativity the theory of gravity fit together uh, and um there's, there's this, this sort of paradox, which is famous in physics, called the, the black hole paradox. And so the question is, given that black holes radiate uh, this apparently random light, uh, does the stuff that falls in and the stuff that come out, comes out eventually, is that somehow correlated or is it completely scrambled? And so he had this bet with, uh, with John Preskill, who's a famous Caltech physicist, uh, and, and um, Hawking Eventually conceded the bet, although I gather Preskill wasn't sure why. <laughs> it's not been resolved yet. <laughs> That's
2: so great. That's, you go, what does he know that I don't? <laughs> oh, that, like.
0: and so there was also apparently another time where he, um, you know, was having, had a hosted a party for time travellers. And again, I think you can see the actual photos of this. Um, and so he, there's like a whole champagne tower and all this stuff. But he didn't tell anybody about the party until after it had happened. So he figured if there was any time travellers, they're going to show up. But no one did. So. The interesting
2: thing about those experiments is that you have to have the party even though no one's there, because if you yeah sorry you do the party, no one shows up. You still have to hand the invitations out. Yeah. Otherwise, the whole experiment doesn't work. Yeah, well that's,
0: that's what that's what happened. It was I don't know. I love that kind of stuff, but yeah, I mean it's sad, but again, like he had a fantastic life. He did so much amazing stuff, and the world is definitely better for him having been in it.
3: Oh yeah, and he surpassed everybody's expectation of actually staying alive to this point. So he's had a phenomenal run in, like yeah. a run. Yeah. in his career. And, Glad he did. Yeah, and I often wonder if he would have reached the acclimation that he had if he um, never got sick. And I wonder where that path would have taken if he never got sick, um, if he didn't lose all of his motor functioning. Would he have had the same success? I don't know, though, because, I mean,
0: he's still a very great science communicator. I don't know if it...
1: Yeah, I mean, that was one of one of the things that people loved about him was that he was able to communicate ideas in a way that was really inspirational mm. and um, I, I, I'm sure that was part of his personality and his character not a consequence of his, his no. disease mm.
3: and um, I think it just his disease did amplify what a, an amazing person this is where it didn't stop him from writing how many books and just living a relatively normal quote life
1: well the other thing that's amazing when you think about it is that he's a theoretical physicist and and the currency of most theoretical physicists is calculations and doing mathematics and you know doing complicated mathematics isn't something you can do in your head for most people you need <laughs> no, to write no. pages and pages of calculations out and uh, yet he could you know he didn't have the capability to, to do the calculations mechanically on on a piece of paper or on a computer. Uh, and yet, you know, sitting in his, in his chair, he could think through the the reasoning. I
2: can't even do shopping lists, <laughs> to be honest with you. Just...
0: your Nuts reaction here on Z Digital and Izzy. Go. Tell me about NATO.
2: Okay, so this is a paper called "A Model for Human, uh, Humanitarian Intervention: Reassessing NATO's Libya Campaign," uh, published in twenty thirteen in, uh, in the International Security Journal.
0: And we're only finding out about it now.
2: Yeah, I know. So uh, just a bit of an old one. But I, I came across it and I think it's really interesting because you don't often see this sort of academic uh, quantitative analysis of foreign policy or like government action. And maybe we should have a bit more of a, a really quantitative analysis of those kinds of things. Yeah, pay have...
0: political um, scientists for that. Yeah. Well, yeah. You have to have
2: it. <laughs> have to employ people and put money into sciences that might not have... And res-
0: governments aren't going to be keen. Well,
2: especially because a lot of the results go, well, you guys kind of made a mistake. Yeah, yeah. you want to try that again. So yeah. I want to go through this quickly because we're running out of time here. But it's basically looking at... Because Libya is often held up as a really good example of a decent humanitarian intervention, uh, engaging in the norm that we call now the responsibility to protect. So in situations where uh, a government or state is like actively persecuting its civilians, there's a sort of an emerging idea in the international stage that the international community has a responsibility to protect those people. Uh, but so,
3: like, they're not doing in the Middle East,
2: yeah, or you know, the Rohingyas in uh, Burma right now. But uh, we're looking into this now. So at the beginning of the conflict, like the conflict sort of at the end of the conflict, we've sort of had this idea that with the replacement of Gaddafi and his downfall, that it was sort of a net positive in the area. However. This researcher, uh, who I've lost his name all of a sudden, very poor form Unnamed researcher. <laughs> this is an unnamed researcher. This, this lone hero of academia, will say, uh, predicts that the intervention may have actually caused up to seven to ten times more casualties than, uh, than would have initially happened. Because by the time the intervention took place, because it began in March of 2011, the actual uh, civil war. In within six weeks, it was almost over with 257 people dead. Uh, terrible loss to people. Uh, this is a part of the Arab Spring, if people can cast their minds back to 2011, 2012. Uh, the idea was that this was a brutal oppression of the people, and it was, and I don't want to justify anyone's, uh, anybody, I don't want to justify a dictator's moves. But after the intervention, it started to prolong the war and it stretched from what it looked like was going to be over in six weeks to 36 weeks. And the most conservative estimates have about 8,000 dead with 11,500 being the sort of the, the ceiling of the estimates for people at the end. And we look into why this happened. And it was a, di- it kind of seems to be a direct result of the intervention, uh, by waiting so long until the, inter- until they intervened, it polarized the whole situation with, uh, Sort of was going to be an end to the conflict with uh, you know terrible dictators still in power. The uh, but the idea of a humanitarian intervention to protect people quickly fell apart into this idea of we need to change the regime, uh, which itself left a big power vacuum and under which there was no central control. A whole bunch of different armed groups started persecuting people along ethnic and uh, religious lines, just in their local communities. Uh, a lot of people were. Immediately beset upon, especially a lot of the majority black migrant workers who were brought into Libya uh, under Gaddafi under Gaddafi's administration to be workers. Uh, they were sort of instantly perceived to be others and enemy, and they were actively persecuted following the um, following the downfall. So I do want to try and get through this very quickly. Uh, what what it try, What this paper is really talking about is the idea that. We need, before someone just, like the international community decides to just intervene in another country civil war it needs to have like really set concrete goals in place about what it wants to achieve and how it's going to achieve them and where what happens at the end because <laughs> uh, this is sort of a an illustration of what happens when you have no exit strategy and that's kind of been what's happened in the Middle East constantly over the last few decades where people go in with good intentions but no real plan for what happens following
3: it's not really a much of a humanitarian effort it's more just like a control yeah
2: exactly the, the humanitarian effort is quickly displaced by this idea that we need to cause a regime change and the, what happens after like following that is what with a real conflict lies so in the, the the paper also raises the idea that it was com- NATO was completely either mis- uh, misperceived the situation or maybe it was misled or maybe it was deliberately misperceived the situation to be an active bloodbath throughout all of Libya during the beginning of, this, uh, during the, beginning of the Civil War. It doesn't seem to be true. Using various analysis from uh, Human Rights Watch and other NGOs, the casualties in the early opening stages of the Civil War were very minimal. Uh, again, don't want to justify them, it's just that it wasn't what people perceived it to be and it's believed a lot of this comes down to a really good PR campaign on the side of the rebels. They were involved in the uh, in the National Transitional Council for Libya in Switzerland and the Libyan League for Human Rights uh, before, prior to the intervention and after it became clear the international community was going to intervene, the rebel community, uh, so the rebel groups knew that they would have backup very soon and started to dig in and really execute like a bloodier campaign uh, following that. Again, this is not to sort of say one way or the other is a good idea to go when you shouldn't intervene or when you shouldn't. It's just to sort of rethink...
3: How you intervene in these situations which require humanitarian effort and not um, exacerbate the situation.
2: Yes, exactly. And uh, it also points out that the destabilization that happened in libya did very much help things like uh, help along the syrian pro- like this the civil war in syria into like a full-on catastrophe later on and it's especially poignant when you think about how nato had, again intervened in syria with the arming of rebel groups and uh the depl- and how we deploy forces there how they deployed forces there again it doesn't seem like a lat- lesson has been learned especially well and yeah, yeah. I, but I can't really go into much more detail without taking up another hour of the show. <laughs> so uh, the sort of the takeaway we can get from here is humanitarian efforts are great, but we really need to make sure like, we know why we're there, why you're doing what you're doing, and having a, a plan for what is going to ha- come after you leave.
0: Will governments listen? Probably not. Probably
2: not. Otherwise, you can end up with seven to ten times more casualties than you wanted. So you didn't want any. But uh, uh similar tension that was very expected. Sorry, slip of the tongue. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's terrible. Yes, the worst slip of the tongue. Your natural reaction here on Z Digital, and we're about to finish up. We've been talking. Wait, do you wanna? How quickly can you do your story? Nah, let's leave it for next week. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna have to come back next week so you can hear all about my story, which we might do about elongated skulls, weird alien-looking skulls, and Nadia's story about saga antelopes. Yes,
2: and they're both great. Let me tell you right now.
0: Thank you. You haven't even. Oh, you did see my story, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, okay, fine. Fine. And uh,
2: our lovely guest has left us a couple of very interesting papers which I think we'll talk about next week. We'll
0: have to we'll have to pour over, see what we find. Mm. Um so Tom, thank you again so much for coming in. we really appreciated having you.
1: Thanks for having me. It's
0: been yeah. fun. Yeah, it's been it's been really good. So we've talked about quantum. Um again, if you guys wanted to go to the World Science Festival, you definitely should. So it's it's in Brisbane every year. There is so many events
3: happening and you can see them all on the World Science Festival. Yeah, page. I just Sorry, I just wanted to say as well. Like, I definitely have a much better understanding of quantum physics after having a chat to you. <laughs> yeah. than would, most. We'll, we should you know. come
1: along to Quantum Games on the weekend and <laughs> check it out. I mean, there's loads of other stuff too at World Science Festival. Oh, yeah.
3: definitely. I definitely need to attend it. Yes,
1: like it's been fantastic. I
2: agree, Nadia, 100. percent Like, it's just been it's been very enlightening to talk about because the quantum is becoming a bit of a buzzword where people just throw it onto anything.
0: It is a buzzword. There's no bit about it.
2: It's been excellent.
1: Well, I, I hang out with quantum physicists all the time, and you know, for the last twenty years, and it hasn't been a buzzword until recently. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly.
2: Because, because I, I mean, like people are throwing quantum onto things that just to make it sound a bit sexier, but it's, it's good to get like the actual science behind it. Hmm.
3: Mm. And knowing that it's not as scary as you think, mostly, mostly. mostly. <laughs> I still don't understand, but I have a better understanding of it now. So, what but, what else are we talk about? We talked about Nettie Stevens.
0: Yep who was our Snub Scientist of the Week and is kind of amazing. I don't know. I love that you kind of forget about how how little we knew not that long ago.
3: Yeah, I I really do love that we're 100 years ago – it doesn't seem that long ago. It isn't that long ago. It's to... two generations, three generations. And just the exponential leap that we've had in science, how we, what we know, how we go about things, how we experiment. It's just been phenomenal, all this information. And I'm always wondering, is there any anything left to discover? Yes. Um, <laughs> and yes, of course, there's so much more to be discovered. <laughs> but it seems like all this groundbreaking work that's happened over the past century has just been so monumental it's like where do we go from here well i'm
0: sure we'll look back on this though in like a 100 years time and we be the same kind of thing and we're like oh well that's crazy like the fact that there was so much to discover back then you know yeah i'm gonna be dead by then so (laughs) you can
2: look back but it's also true like some of this isn't an artifact of history like uh the first steam engine steam steam train steam locomotion was in 1800 and something and then like less than a century and a half like sorry less than two centuries later we were in space yeah, it's, it's like cool. It's like the, the, there has been a noticeable acceleration in, like, our technological abilities.
0: I'm going to finish up, but everybody, we appreciate you coming in. You're a action, your reaction. And thanks, everyone, for listening.
2: Bye. Bye.